Welcome to We Fight For That from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. My name is John Lawford and I'm the Executive Director and General Counsel at PIAC. If you want lower cell phone bills, if you want a refund from a flight you couldn't take, or if you want to be treated better by your bank, we fight for that. Time for another round of consumer protection. Welcome to episode 26 of We Fight For That. And today uh, we have a uh, interesting update on the Rogers and Shaw deal. And I'm very pleased to welcome to this podcast, Simon Lockie, who's a partner with Globalive, Globalive Capital, I guess. And um, before I introduce him, just want to say hello, Simon, and thanks for joining on the podcast. Well, thank you, John, and we appreciate uh, being given an audience. Well, absolutely. I mean, you guys have been part of uh, the Canadian telecom scene for some time, and for people who don't know uh, the exact history of that, we're going to go that into that for a moment. Now, I've known Simon for many years, and Simon's like one of those people that he, he, he just seems to have appeared in my life and been part of the as I said, the telecom scene and, and because we have discussions that seem to make sense, it's like, it's like you've always been there, but I wanted you to, um, to go in, into a little bit of what it is you do for Global Live and then the history of, of that organization. Some people may have heard the name Anthony Lacavera. He's, he's also, uh, involved with, with, uh, Global Live. So I'm going to pass that over to you, but. Simon is a lawyer, and um, you're pretty much like Globalive's um, regulatory counsel, if you will, for all things telecom. Is that right? That is correct. I mean, the Globalive team, going back now uh, about 20 years, is Anthony Lacavera, uh, who's the founder of Globalive. Uh, shortly after uh, he started the company, Bryce Seschuk joined. Uh, Bryce uh, is currently the CEO of Globalive Capital. And then we have a, a small team that has also been together for a very long time. Uh, I'm a lawyer by background, so sort of by default, anytime uh, something smells like the law might be involved, I handle it for us. We're a, we're a very lean sort of horizontal organization, so we all do what we can to, to keep the wheels turning. That's the impression I get too, but uh, but very sophisticated. So I'm just going to ask you, Simon, if you don't mind to to give a little history of Global Live's adventures in Canadian telecom, which have been very interesting over the years. To bring people up to date before we move into the present drama, which is the Rogers and Shaw merger deal. So uh, could you just bring us up to date on 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 some of that history? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, it, it is a, a relatively speaking long history. Um, and, you know, as you know, Canada is a small place in some regards. Uh, so, you know, we've seen a lot of interaction with the incumbent telephone and cable companies uh, over the years. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the three of us have been working together for about 20 years. Uh, we've seen the team uh, swell and expand uh, at times to about 1,600 people, actually, when we mm -hmm. operated uh, WIND. Uh, to our current uh, staff, which is uh, about eight. And uh, we operate primarily as a family office. So we do a lot of venture capital and uh, real estate and other uh, investing. But going back to our origins, we were an operating uh, sort of behind the scenes telephone company uh, that started uh, in the competitive local exchange carrier regime, which 
was a sort of spectacular failure, <laughs> as, as I recall, uh, and pivoted to servicing the hospitality industry. Um, and for many years, we just sort of honed our chops and, and, and learned how to operate businesses. And it was a pretty major expansion for us to acquire a company called Yak, which you may recall was a, a dial-around long-distance company. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a, a very significant transaction for us. And in addition to it being sort of more than four or five times our size, uh, it was also uh, the first time that we were really truly consumer facing. We had a uh, very early stage VoIP uh, business targeting small businesses, but this was the first time we really waded into the the retail market. Um, and about a year after that transaction. I recall very clearly the announcement of the set-aside regime with the AWS Spectrum. So this was the set-aside uh, Spectrum auction that gave birth to companies like Public Mobile, Mobilicity. Uh, it started uh, Videotron in Wireless in Quebec, and we got our start as well at that time. Uh, and you know, I, I think, although I don't want to dwell for too long on the past, I think it's illuminating maybe for you know, who we are and, and how we see the world to, to, to understand that we raised all in about $1.4 billion uh, to acquire Spectrum, hire all the people and you know, establish a retail footprint, build a network, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it was a very uh, difficult beginning. And and that's not an accident. That was uh, those are obstacles that we had to overcome that were put in our way by the incumbents, as you would uh, sort of expect them to do, and as is their sort of business to do. But coming out of the gate, we were uh, just a little bit of context is that uh, in order to acquire spectrum licenses in this country uh, at that time, you would have to qualify as not being controlled by a non-Canadian. And uh, a lot of the capital that we brought in for that initiative came from uh, outside of Canada. Uh, so we had to go through uh, a process where Industry Canada reviewed our ownership and control to ensure that we were compliant with the test. And after they had satisfied themselves that that was the case, uh, we were issued our licenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, at that time, TELUS and Public Mobile requested of the CRTC that they separately assess our compliance with literally the exact same test that had just been applied by Industry Canada. I remember that. Yeah, it was uh, certainly uh, caught us by surprise, given that we had already been sort of through the the grinder and 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 emerged uh, having been deemed compliant to have to go through that again at the behest of one of the dominant <laughs> carriers in this country seemed a little odd. Uh, but not only did uh, the CRTC uh, consider that request, they also considered TELUS's request that for the very first time in Canadian telecom history, that the hearing into our compliance would be a public hearing that would uh, invite participation by external uh, parties. That's why I remember it. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and in the meantime, it's interesting to, to know that they wouldn't engage with us at all. They said, we're going to first 
determine whether or not it should be a public hearing as Bell Rogers and tell us are telling it should be telling us it should be. Um, and after they'd gone through that exercise, they said, yes, we should have a hearing and yes, it should be uh, public and anyone who wants to, you know, add their two cents may do so. It won't surprise you to learn that the only external parties that actually showed up for that were Bell Rogers and tell us, and they mounted a full offensive on our structure. Ultimately the CRTC uh, determined that we were not compliant with the rules. They neglected to, and arguably couldn't tell us in what way we didn't comply. Uh, we certainly did not have any direction as to how to remedy our supposed non-compliance. Uh, fortunately for us, cabinet at that time uh, reviewed and, and, and actually overturned the CRT decision saying, in point of fact, we were compliant uh, and we were entitled to operate. And it was either that day or certainly it was in the next day or two that we launched our operation uh, and started competing with the incumbents sort of in the trenches, as it were. And that's, so that was the birth of, of Wind Mobile. And it took uh, many months longer to get out of the gate than we would have liked. Uh, and it was probably a pretty good taste of things to come. Uh, one of the other challenges that we had at the time uh, was that you know, as you build out a network, you start with a single antenna and you go from there. And uh, in order to facilitate and encourage entry and, and to get us launched in the market, uh, the incumbents at that time were required to provide domestic roaming to us. So similar to when you travel to another country and you are using another carrier's network, uh, we had the ability to do that in Canada um, while we built out our network. Uh, unfortunately, it was just sort of the regime was flawed, and I would say a complete failure in that at that time, uh, there was only one carrier in Canada that was technologically uh, compatible with our spectrum, and that was Rogers. And we had to go through an artifice of negotiation with them where we had sort of Dr. Evil type uh, terms uh, foisted upon us that we really didn't have any meaningful ability to push back on. Now, some of those things were just, you know, completely inconsistent with any other roaming agreement anyone has ever seen. For example, uh, our customers would be charged for incoming text messages. That was very unusual. Mm -hmm. But probably one of the most egregious examples I can give that just sort of, I think, dictated in some senses our, our commercial proposition entirely was that Rogers imposed a $1,000 per gigabyte wholesale roaming rate on us. <laughs> so uh, uh, right. it hopefully goes without saying we couldn't you know, take that on. We couldn't pay it and we certainly couldn't pass that cost along to our customers. So we ended up having to roam only on Rogers 2G or second generation network, not 3G, certainly not 4G. And a 2G network works for voice and, and, and text, but is useless for data. So it was basically the only network that we could afford to roam on. And what that meant is that we had to create home and away zones where if you were on our network, then you could you know, consume data. And, 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 and if you were not, if you were on the Rogers cellular network, uh, then you wouldn't be able to consume any data. 
which, you know, just right out of the gate, you can understand the kinds of headwinds that we were facing. And I could go on at very great length about how many stories like that I have. And they're actually pretty interesting, but they're also far in the past. So what I'll, I'll fast forward to sure. is that, you know, after we, we eventually did surmount all of these obstacles and, and, and we ended up doing a lot of good things that we're proud of. And to this day, I think you will still see our impact in the market. So as an example, uh, there was no available unlimited talk, voice, text, or data in Canada. That's something that we introduced. This is a big gig, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We, we introduced the whole concept of unlimited, and obviously there is a slowdown at, you know, beyond certain levels. But that's something that, you know, ironically, the incumbents were sending me letters, threatening me with legal action, saying, well, it's not really unlimited because you, uh, you throttle it eventually. And of course, they all eventually adopted that as, as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which is, um, which is, you know, long since been forgotten that that you needed competition really to introduce that because when the incumbents were simply competing against each other, there was no real impetus to to introduce a term like that that they would simply all have to offer. And similarly, when we got a reasonable, nothing sort of preferential or anything like that, but just a reasonable roaming agreement with the U.S. carriers, uh, we immediately uh, introduced unlimited U.S. roaming, which is you know, something that, again, had never been seen. It was a, quite an enormous cash cow for the incumbents, and there were all sorts of horror stories about people coming home to uh, unexpected roaming charges. And we're, you know, we're proud of that. And so when you think about things like Rome Like Home uh, and, and the equivalent programs, even though, you know, we'll return to this, what's happened since we exited the market, but some of those changes have been, you know, more durable than others. But, you know, that they're, they're a good indication and I think a good reminder about what a true independent pure play, and by that I mean just a wireless carrier that does only that, uh, can accomplish in the market, even in the face of having its business plan uh, messed around with, with regulatory gamesmanship and, and delays. By the time we sorted all of this out, unfortunately, it really was too late uh, for us. Our significant shareholder had had enough. Uh, <laughs> they compared Canada unfavorably to an operation they had built in North Korea. So uh, <laughs> they, they, they were not a fan of how their capital and uh, their operation had been treated throughout this uh, you know, very challenging beginning to, to win's life. And so... Uh, we were able to buy them out uh, with a consortium of private equity that we put together, still controlled the company up to this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we brought in the private equity, that was no longer uh, sustainable. And, and it was uh, a group of uh, investors. Uh, and collectively, they, uh, once we had identified that, that Shaw was prepared to pay significantly higher than they had paid to to take out our strategic investor, uh, they were all over it. And, and candidly, Bryce, Tony, and I, you know, at the time, we were very vocal in, in media and, and privately and publicly. Uh, but we really got dragged kicking and screaming into that sale. At, at that time, uh, we really had paid the price and, and, and put in the hard work. And we now had, you know, a, a profitable, we were EBITDA positive. 
we had over a million subscribers. As I say, we we had you know really started to make some noise and, and get some traction as an effective competitor, and and that all came to an end with our sale. And this was now in 2015 uh, to Shaw. So I'll pause there in case there's anything you know specific that you, you want me to go back on. But I will say that the next thing where the story picks up again is. Uh, when we learned alongside everyone else that Rogers had agreed to acquire Shaw. Yeah, there you go. Well, I wanted you to explain that Wind Mobile was your baby and that it brought very material price decreases to consumers while it lasted, despite the many challenges of entering a market and building up without Spectrum and without uh, customers and without uh, without anything except some, some, some venture capital, so to speak, um, in the face of the present market structure, which is three large telcos that run most of the cell phones in Canada. And then how did, how did Wind end up becoming part of Shaw? Because that's where we're going with this. And you've admirably brought us up to, uh, up to speed on that. Uh, and then, yes, I was just uh, chatting with Simon before this, uh, and dear listeners, we have not dealt with Rogers and Shaw, despite the many twists and turns of this story since episode eight, when I spoke to Ben Klass about the MVNO ruling and also Rogers and Shaw. And before that, episode seven with Conrad von Finkenstein about whether it was a good deal or not and how it would work. And before that, episode six, so we did do three in a row, uh, when I tried to explain the deal on March 15th, 2021. So what the heck has happened that we let this lie fallow for a year and, well, sort of six months-ish, uh, well, things have happened. <laughs> um, Rogers, uh, on March 15th, um, 2021, did announce they were buying Shaw. Very confidently, like the deal was already done. In fact, their their materials, you know, touted all the benefits of the merger and uh, pretty much said that they were going to have their regulatory approvals in place in uh, three to six months. And then this was all going forward and, and it was good for Canada. And, you know, I, I think to be absolutely honest, I, it probably caught you by surprise, Simon, it certainly caught us by surprise. Um, and then there were some skirmishes and I will bring up one that we did at PIAC, which was we, uh, this, this deal was to buy all of Shaw, not just their wireless, but also their wireline, including home internet and home phone and, and their television services. And the CRTC in a bizarre twist of Canadian law does get to approve whether a broadcasting merger goes through, but has no say in whether a telecom merger happens. That's the competition bureau and the competition tribunal and the minister of industry who gets to say whether the spectrum is allowed to be transferred along with the other assets. So weirdly enough, we did a hearing on uh, Rogers um, buying Shaw's broadcasting assets, which the CFC did approve despite the fact that we said they shouldn't. Um, and that's where it sat for a very long time. And, and this deal seem to be going towards completion um, in the fall of and the winter of 2021. And then there were some hiccups that started to happen. <laughs> uh, and if I recall rightly, Simon, refresh my memory, the first 
indication that the competition bureau had any concerns with the transactions or was doing anything to slow it down was was it january or february in 2022 is it that late that they announced they were like there there were a number of extensions of financing and all sorts of things through this period um but to be honest i'm blanking on why after the crtc the, the thing didn't close i guess the competition bureau said they were still looking at it yeah i think one of the and and you know our, one thing that i think will become evident to your listeners throughout the course of this discussion is you know we we don't give up easily at global life and and this really tested that uh that uh, it did catch you by surprise right <laughs> well sir it caught me by surprise that when they first announced the merger and i think it might be a good sort of quick bit of history is that you know, Rogers and Shaw have a long history of staying out of each other's backyard. So uh, Shaw's got the cable footprint out west, and 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 Rogers is everything east of that. Um, and that's the way they kept it. So they never really stepped on each other's toes and competed against each other. And that changed with Shaw's acquisition of Wind only with respect to. And I will just, you know, I think everyone knows this, but Wind was subsequently renamed Freedom. So when we talk about yes. uh, Wind, we're also talking about Freedom. And when they had acquired Wind and re- renamed it Freedom for the first time, Rogers and Shaw really went um, against each other in the marketplace, uh, since obviously the, the 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 Wind Freedom footprint is Ontario, BC, and Alberta. Uh, so particularly in Ontario. Uh, that's uh, and, and for with respect to wireless, even out west, um, Rogers uh, and Shaw sort of were, were were in each other's uh, space for the first time. When I first heard that Rogers had acquired Shaw, and when I say first heard, I mean maybe the first five to ten seconds, I thought, you know, holy shit, they they somehow got the government to abandon its pro-competitive policies and go back to just three carriers in each of those regions. And then I thought, well, there's no way that that's true. And it, it just became very clear to me that uh, Rogers knew very well that it would have to make substantial divestitures of the wireless business in those uh, regions in order to get the cable deal through. It just it, it just was you know evident on the face of it. Uh, so Bryce, Tony, and I, you know looked at this as a really incredible opportunity to finish what we started to, to get back on that horse. And so we virtually immediately reached out to Rogers at the highest levels and said, you know, we're very interested in, you know, acting as a transaction partner so that you can remedy what we anticipate will be, you know, obvious anti-competitive uh, effects of, of the merger otherwise. In other words, you're going to have to get rid of this thing and we want to buy it. And we have the money, uh, w- w- which we had already corralled. We uh, approached um, significant, very deep-pocketed, uh, very, call it, savvy and experienced investors with trillions of dollars uh, being managed. And so we had the capital. Uh, we had secured uh a network and spectrum sharing deal with TELUS that, you know, we believe to be extraordinarily favorable to competition and to uh, our ability to succeed in the marketplace. 
And so if you think of what we accomplished with all of the obstacles previously, we now thought, you know what, we've got the building blocks in place here to, to really for, for, well, indefinitely really, but certainly for decades to come to finally introduce some vigorous competition uh, like you see in virtually every other part of the world here in Canada. Uh, one little problem, obviously, we have to get Rogers to transact with us. And that what we became very clear very quickly was not at all interesting to Rogers. I mean, initially, they simply outright denied that they were even contemplating any divestitures, that they would close the entire deal, including the wireless assets. And they were very confident about that which we knew not to be true. And it's also, as I mentioned at the outset, it's a small country and, and you know, freedom in particular has a lot of overlap um, from, the, from our day to, to today. And it was just well known to us that they were in fact pursuing various scenarios to divest those assets and were in our mind, you know, very clearly and deliberately seeking the least disruptive, least competitive, most favorable to Rogers outcome, uh, you know, consistent with the, with trying to solve for the required regulatory approvals. Let me stop you there. Sure. So, dear listener, from a, a, a consumer point of view, what's going on here is that you've got Rogers announcing a deal which most of the people inside baseball, if you will, with telecommunications, um, would have thought would trigger the government's concern that we are going to go from four competitors in large markets like Ontario and Alberta to three, and that that generally has not been the government's wish. In fact, they've had a number of statements over the years saying they want four competitors in each market. That's different than having four national competitors, but don't worry about it for now. Um and that this meant that whatever Rogers said about the deal and having the big confidence they had all through that this was going to sail through, certainly within a year, that all along, it was patently obvious to operators like Global Live, probably to Quebec or probably to other, other potential people who might want to buy a wireless company that Rogers would have to give at least some of their wireless assets away. Why? Uh, because the competition bureau would be very likely to express from a competition law point of view that, you know, it was problematic to go from four options for consumers to three for wireless because that tends to raise the price. So just with that framing, if you don't mind, Simon, for our listeners, I thought I would make them understand why you would be so eager as Global Live to jump into the fray again after that lovely story you told us about how much mm -hmm. fun it was to be in the wireless market previously, right? Uh, and how difficult it was. Why would you want to go back in there? Well, in part because the government expects there to be more competition in wireless. And if Rogers had gone with the deal as announced, very likely, you know, it would very much reduce competition. And and eventually, I'll just spoil the uh, the suspense here. The Competition Bureau did say about a year and some after the deal was announced that they were going to oppose the merger. So that's where I'm bringing people up to date. So if I didn't cut you off at a wrong spot, perhaps you could continue with a thought you were on there, telling people like what what your offer was or what you were trying to do with Rogers and, and what happened then. 
Yeah, no, that that's a very helpful interjection. I think it is important context because of, you know we we certainly expected and believed that the government wouldn't permit what they'd started back in the set aside auction in two thousand and eight. Right. Uh, to simply wither on the vine and die. We expected that there would have to be uh, divestitures to allow in each of those affected markets. Again, it's Ontario, BC, and Alberta only, uh, where, where where Freedom and Shaw operate as mobile companies. That's uh, that's why we were very confident that that there would be a divestiture. And, we, and frankly, we and, and I'll explain a bit why because I don't think it's hubris. Uh, we really believed that we were the best positioned uh, operation to take it over again uh, after having addressed a lot of the sort of concerns and challenges. And I and and, and I use those terms lightly from the wind era. We really believe that this is these could be the conditions that really make uh, competition work in Canada, and we're the right ones to do it. Unfortunately. Uh, Rogers, I think, also thought that. And so they were not interested in uh, transacting with us and made that very clear. And it was actually, uh, you know, probably two or three days, we believe, before they were taking bids. They had they had pursued a couple of options that we understood uh, had been rejected by the government sort of outright. Uh, and so they had run a, a very brief, clubby, uh, invitation only process and they were taking bids and we knew this uh, and we essentially said look we know you're taking bids on Friday and we are submitting one too <laughs> so stop telling us that it doesn't exist and for the first time they acknowledged that there was uh, a process and and said yeah you can you can submit a, an offer so we did and I, I think it's important to understand that we submitted an offer that was not conditional on financing. That was for $3.75 billion, uh, which at that time and, and, and still is, you know, by some significant margin, the highest uh, cash price anyone has offered. And our capital was very, very deep and sophisticated and knowledgeable uh, as one example only. Um, one of our investors was a former lead director of T-Mobile in the United States and his uh, private equity firm. So he knows what he's doing. He knows the Canadian market. Uh, he knows how to operate as a pure play a wireless company. And he believed in uh, our proposition and supported us financially. So so we, we, we there was no good reason to uh, ignore or discount uh, or sweep aside our offer, given that we uh, were very credible, we'd operated the asset before under you know, quite challenging exigent circumstances. Uh, we had the capital, we were ready to go, uh, we could close quickly. And one of the things we articulated to Rogers was we would also be the fastest path to regulatory approval, since there's no question about our good faith and, and independence from uh, Rogers and the fact that, you know, we had the, the background and experience to successfully compete. So we really did uh, and do believe that that would have been uh, a, a straightforward path, accept the most money, get the quickest regulatory approval and, 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 and move on with your life. Um, but they uh, took a different view uh, and 
we felt at that time that you know they had run essentially a sham uh, process. It was not a legitimate sales process. It was intentionally uh, seeking the least competitive outcome that they think they could get away with and still secure regulatory approval. So we made sure uh, after pursuing every avenue we could uh, that 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 was clear to government. That that's uh, was clear to the media. We went uh, in the Global Mail, um, and we wanted people to know what was going on, not out of spite, but because we really did believe that the product of such a process could not be in the best interest of Canadians. The product of a of a process that is hand selecting the least competitive possible uh, business partners. Is not a is not what this government should be uh, moving forward with, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's extremely important to note something. And you you did mention this earlier, but if you don't mind, I'm just going to amplify that because we're talking about a spectrum transfer. So those are the airwaves over which you know cellular mobile services you know carry, and this isn't like most business transactions in this country. And what I mean by that is that yes, the competition bureau is going to review it. And if the bureau determines that it will have what's called a substantial lessening or prevention of competition, uh, that's not offset by efficiencies, which are essentially just cost savings to the acquiring company, then they will oppose the merger. Um, And that process is unfolding as you've described. and, And the bureau is challenging the overall transaction and has not wavered. And, you know, candidly, we're very glad about that. And we think that Commissioner Boswell is showing some iron will and resolve in doing his job properly, which is to oppose anti-competitive mergers. And so he's doing that with his team at the Bureau. And that's going to be litigated and adjudicated uh, in front of what's called the Competition Tribunal, which is a which is a court. Probably on uh, the day this uh, podcast comes out, it's the 7th of November is when that hearing is supposed to start if they don't settle it beforehand. So that's just for the listeners. 7th of November is when the Competition Tribunal is starting to hear this case formally. That's absolutely right. What what makes this transaction uh, unique, I would suggest, uh, and I'll even use that word unique, is that spectrum transfers are subject to the Minister of Industry, so that's Minister Champagne. Uh, subject to his approval, which is purely discretionary approval about whether or not in his assessment and the assessment of this government, uh, the proposed transfer is the best possible transfer to achieve their policy objectives, which are Mm -hmm. obviously to have, if you just listen to them and accept at face value, what their objective is, it's to have a, a robust, stable fourth carrier in each market, which, you know, has been demonstrated globally to be uh, what's required to get more affordable prices, which obviously are more important now than ever, uh, and also innovation. So I've described some of the price effects we've had. We took prices down by 25% in the face of all of our challenges, but we also introduced unlimited voice data and text, added unlimited roaming in the US. And, and so that kind of innovation and that kind of uh, competition is something that uh, if you want it, we're offering it again. And this transaction 
just factually will not close if the minister does not approve the transfer. So yes, the Bureau is opposing it. Yes, there's a chance that they will lose. And that's not a function of the underlying facts. It's just the reality is that the the Competition Act, uh, which has been around since 1986, has never successfully been used to contest a merger. It just doesn't have the tools that are necessary for that to happen. So this would be the first time. And that's uh, that's something that I guess you have to worry about, but not <laughs> so much when the minister can block the transaction anyway. Sorry, sure. I, I think. No, no, I, I, I just I'm concerned that perhaps we'll lose some listeners because they haven't been knee deep in this like we have. And I just wanted to wind back to bring them up to sure. where you are. Um, so at the start, a fair bit ago, you said that there were some initial forays in the early part of Rogers, perhaps um, quiet search for a buyer for a freedom to, as I recall, ExploreNet was, uh, was mentioned by them. I think that's public. And uh, the owners of the Vancouver Canucks, neither of those turned out to be something that those companies could pull off and, and that they seem to have dropped off or the discussions broke off. And then we've gotten to the point, um, actually, Simon, where you're um, talking about sort of the company that may not be named so far, seems, uh, Videotron, who uh, is the other company that that you're referring to as being uh, a potential suitor for freedom. In fact, people may have seen in the news that um, Rogers is trying to negotiate with the Competition Tribunal, in effect, or the Competition Bureau, I guess, uh, to... Uh, complete a sale uh, of freedom to Videotron, which is Quebec or in Quebec, rather than say selling it to Globalive. And I believe it's public that the offer you guys made was three point seven five billion. And I believe the the selling price that's been posted, at least for the for the Videotron offer, such as it was structured on the day it was offered, was two point seven five billion. It was like one billion less exactly. Is that right? Somewhere around there. I mean, it may have changed since the deal's contours yeah. may be changing daily, but it's basically what you're saying is, hey, you guys came along, you made an offer, more money, uh, and you have an innovative um, uh, product. You're promising more innovations and, and you know a team that does this, and you'll be a pure play wireless, which has certain competitive dynamics that you know probably will benefit consumers really materially in terms of lowering prices. Um and, and Rogers, for their own reasons, have have gone this other way towards Quebec, or they're trying to. So I'm just trying to bring people up to give them the context. No, it's a, it's good. It's much appreciated. And I, I had forgotten that it's been, the, you know, to your listenership, that it's been a long time since you spoke on this topic. But you're, there's a lot of water under the bridge, and, and that's quite right, is that we have, we, we had our offer ignored. It continues to be ignored. And in the meantime... Uh, Rogers ultimately accepted a bid that was $900 million below our bid. 900 million. That was okay. from Video Trump. All right. And so your offer is still open if they want to take it, I presume, or something like it? Absolutely. All right. And just, just so people know, just because I'm a lawyer and I don't want to be sued, um, the, the Rogers folks, like they don't have to run an auction for who, you know, buys their stuff. Um, they're, as far as I know, um, management and because they're family owned and they're controlling shareholders can make a decision about who they want to sell to without arguably having any effect on their other shareholders um, and may, maybe maybe making a calculated decision that they believe is 
in Rogers' financial long-term interests. So we're not implying that because they didn't take a billion dollar um, offer more that there's any, any problem with what they're doing. But competitively is what I think what we're trying to say here, Simon, that you get a different type of competitor and market structure and the likely product offered to consumers if you go with one type of competitor or another. And you're saying that your offer um, seems to align more with the policy of the government to have a combative fourth player who's really going to try to lower prices. What is it about the structure, if you don't mind me pivoting to this? Sure. Without, again, without like, in any way calling into question Quebec or is a perfectly fine cable-based company that does have a wireless service in Quebec and a little bit of Ontario, to be fair, um, and has bought some spectrum outside of these areas. What is it about the way that you think Quebec or would operate or the way they would handle being in the market that's different from the way you guys would approach it? Like, what's the difference between, let's say you're both suitors for this freedom spinoff from Rogers. What is it that's different about Quebec or to, to Global Live? Yeah, thanks for that. There, there, there are a few things, and I'll, I'll speak to them in order. I think the first thing I'll just observe at the outset is, uh, like you, I'm not suggesting uh, any legal impropriety on, on the part of Rogers. I think they're doing a very rational business thing. Yes, they're accepting a billion dollars less than is on the table, but they're doing so knowing that they will make billions and billions more in the years and decades to come. Uh, in a less competitive market, so that that that's why refs uh, are in hockey games. In my view, that's why you have the ministerial approval uh, requirement. Is that you know Rogers is entitled to pursue what's in its best interest, but you know the government has an objective uh, as well, and that might not necessarily be uh, the the preferred hand selected kind of cozy arrangement that uh, Rogers is seeking to, to put forward. And I, I, I think that it's actually almost the reverse. I would invite people to consider why would Rogers take a billion dollars less? Well, that's the answer. And it, it, it raises the question that you've just put to me, which is, well, what's wrong with Videotron? Why not? Why would Rogers have a perception that Videotron would be less competitive than mm-hmm. Global Life, uh, especially since Videotron competes with them? in Quebec. And I have a couple of answers to that that I think are, you know, they have the benefit of being true and, and accessible. So, you know, understand that even though I have a horse in this race, uh, you know, I think the facts sort of speak for themselves. And the first item is that uh, Videotron has is an operation in Quebec, but that's not where this transaction is happening. This is happening in BC, Alberta and Ontario. Uh, where Videotron has no operations whatsoever. Uh, they, you know, consumers in those regions, I think would probably, uh, based on what I've seen, not even know that Videotron operates a wireless company called Fizz in Quebec. That's their discount brand uh, because it's just not relevant in Quebec. But but where it's relevant in this transaction is that those are very valuable customers of Videotrons in Quebec. And it would be suicide for them to be really aggressive and disruptive in BC, Alberta, and Ontario 
with all of the other challenges that they would face there, where they would get attacked isn't in BC, Alberta, and Ontario in, in competition for wireless consumers. They would absolutely be rationally, and we'll use that term again because you know these these are all rational commercial actors doing what they can to make themselves as profitable as possible. And they would go after Quebec to discipline Quebec in Quebec where it's more valuable customers are. That's the spot where you can really hurt them. And that's where they would uh, seek to discipline. But I don't think they'd ever have to discipline because I think Videotron understands that. I think that this, this skirmish is over before it started. I think that they, and I'll predict this right now, they would effectively raise prices in Ontario, BC, and Alberta to placate uh, the incumbents and to protect their Quebec business. So that, so that's point A. When you say raise prices, you mean raise prices that Freedom customers now pay? That's a possibility? I absolutely think that, well, I mean, let's look at what the minister, and, and we're, we're going to get ahead a bit to what the minister that's has okay. suggested would be the, the, the criteria that he, that he would want to see in order to approve. But uh, one of them is that uh, Quebec Corps or Videotron, who was owned by Quebec Corps, would have to offer the same pricing in BC, Alberta, and Ontario as it does in Quebec. And, and what he pointed to there is that Quebec is currently a more competitive market than Ontario, BC, and Alberta. And he said, I want to roll that out to those other provinces. Mm-hmm. However, what is mistaken about that apart from anything else, is that Freedom and, and Shaw Mobile at West already have more affordable plans for the same uh, product as Videotron offers in Quebec. And what I'd like to speak to, and I think that this is just absolutely core, and, and, and frankly, if I get a little elevated here, I apologize. It is frustrating to me as a Canadian that, you know, and there aren't many countries in this, uh, or rather, there, Canada... I'm already getting flustered, but it does it does kind of rile me up that you know, Canadians in Canada aren't the worst in the world at many things. I mean, we're a wonderful country, but wireless competition, we're certainly among the worst, least competitive wireless markets in the entire world. And in the face of that, Quebec might be marginally more competitive, given that Videotron has a uh, an established brand there and has been operating since 2008 without the kinds of challenges that wind faced. Um, but they're marginally more competitive than the rest of Canada. They're still far, far, far behind the United States, anywhere in Europe, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, you name it. You have this approach of saying we have the least competitive market or among the least competitive markets in the entire world. And rather than set the benchmark outside of Canada and follow the structural models that have worked to create competition and drive innovation and affordability throughout literally the rest of the world, we're going to seek to roll out this very incremental uh, and and I would suggest illusory, uh, more competitive market in Quebec to BC, Alberta and Ontario. I think we can and, and Canadians deserve to have a structural solution that drives real results. And, and we don't have to look very far to see where that happens. And that's having a truly at scale, independent, pure play wireless company. And a great example of, is right in front of us with T-Mobile in the US uh, that is incented to compete, not in a way that preserves and, 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 and 
and protects legacy fixed line infrastructure. So that's something that's true of Shaw. It's also true of Videotron. It's true of Rogers, Bell, and Telus. That they all operate as you know fixed line businesses, you know first and foremost. And so wireless service is a supplement to that. You often hear of, of, of quad play offerings and so on. Um, T-Mobile is a purely wireless company, and it has been a successful com- competitor to AT and T and Verizon. They're the really established, you know, legacy wireless companies. Uh, and it even called itself, you might remember this, the Uncarrier. And the Uncarrier was a tremendously successful campaign where they said, we're not like those guys. We're just going to provide wireless service and we're going to compete for it. We're not, we're not going to be anything like them. They've been very effective at introducing competition and maintaining it. Uh, and I would say that that's the result of clear-headed uh, government policy decisions in the U.S. And what they have done more recently that I think is incredibly interesting, and it just shows, again, where all of this can go and what Canadians are being deprived of, is that they are offering now services such as home internet that are traditionally uh, provided over fixed lines. So you think of the cable going along the street or from the street to the house or to the apartment building. That's typically how most people get their home internet here in Canada. Well, in the States, the fastest growing home internet provider in the United States right now is T-Mobile. And Verizon is reacting to that competitively. Prices are coming down. People are getting innovative. They're providing those services over something called fixed wireless access, which is you know using uh, newly acquired and, and, and transitioned spectrum and new technology, providing equivalent levels of service without the wire. Verizon's had to react to that, not just in terms of its fixed line offering. They've announced that they're going to be building out fixed wireless access themselves to over 50 million U.S. homes. So I, I, I look at the example of the United States, and, it, and it's just crystal clear what's different there, which is that they have an independent pure play wireless company. And that's something that Shaw isn't, and Rogers isn't, and Bell isn't, and Telus isn't, and neither is Videotron. So if Videotron were to acquire these assets, I very strongly believe not only will things not get more competitive, things will get worse. And the kinds of changes that you see, the kind of innovations that you see in the United States and beyond, and we could be talking about Vodafone in Europe if we wanted to, the examples are are crystal clear. Canadians will never get that kind of competition as long as everybody operating in the space is a legacy fixed line company. And with all respect to Videotron, it is, yeah. in fact, a legacy fixed line company. Nobody's denying that. My own sense of it is that those things will slowly bleed in there when one of the three decides it's you know inevitable or, or whatever that they have to launch you know, fixed wireless into the market. Um, but they'll kind of all do it together and it'll be in a decade <laughs> uh, rather than, than starting you know, in six months or something. If, if say, Global Live were to start offering the type of service you're talking about or you know, a foreign company were to come in, say, T-Mobile Canada. Not that I've heard that at all happening, in case people get excited by the comment. Well, I hope you're right. I would. I will say that, you know, I, going back to the wind era, there was an Australian company that built a wireless uh, access network on the TTC, so our, our subway system here in Toronto. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I was, you know, in the chair at wind and negotiating with them, and I said, yeah, we would love for our customers to be able to use their cell phones while riding on the TTC, apart from the convenience of it, 
also sort of safety implications. And mm-hmm. we thought that it was uh, an absolutely no-brainer for us to pay them for access to that infrastructure. And and today, you know, many years later, wind is still the only one because Bell, Freedom, Rogers, yeah. and Telus declined to pay the very reasonable rates to give themselves access on it. Because as long as none of them offer it, and it's just freedom, then they don't see a need to react competitively. And so, you know, I, I hope you're right that there is ultimately a shift to fixed wireless access and people start investing in that. Uh, but I wouldn't be holding my breath. Personally. It certainly won't be quick for the structural reasons that you outlined. And I, I think that that's something that is a possibility that I had not fully grasped until about six months ago that that 5g in fact if you stick up a stationary tower in a highly populated area can serve a lot of people direct into your house and let you use the internet on your computer with a little receiver uh rather than your cell phone it also works for your cell phone but it's another way of getting into the house is the difficulty of course with competing against wireline people like bell or rogers or whatever who come in through a cable or a telephone wire is you've got to get in the house before you can offer internet service and it's been the difficulty that the uh, competitive internet providers you might have heard of have been having you know to try to get from the street to the house and then their internet traffic back to the internet uh, they have to in effect lease at least part of um, the wires of the big guys. And then that's very difficult. But if you can hop over them somehow, of course, uh, you can sell directly. And and this seems to be even more possible with wireless. So that's something that, that I don't believe has been really discussed in policy circles very much. I know you've been mentioning it, Simon, and I've heard of it um, after I did some digging on it, but it, it, it's a possibility for a fourth player that is trying to do the maverick we just offer wireless service that makes it more possible to succeed because i think there's some skepticism perhaps from or some concern from consumers and maybe policymakers regulators whoever that a pure play fourth player wireless would try very hard (laughs) and maybe cut wireless prices uh to get market share right and then fail because there's not enough money if you cut down to the bone and you've got all these other challenges and you have to buy spectrum, which is very expensive. Right. And then buy people, their phones and, you know, build up your, your marketing network and all that stuff. Even if you get a head start by starting with all of freedom's customers, unless there's some other revenue source. And so I think what's important to me from what you're saying is there is a possible other revenue source. And in fact, other carriers, you're saying T-Mobile and others in Europe have this model and maybe in reaction, some of the U.S. carriers are going to, in effect, cannibalize, if I can put it that way, their wireline networks or offer wireless as a way, an alternate way to deliver service. So I think that's just very interesting. I don't I don't know if it's persuasive to people. <laughs> I know you've been talking to them. I do want to pivot because we're running out of time a little bit to what the minister has been doing and what the competition tribunal are doing here in the last stages of the Roger Shaw deal, because I think. That's what people want to know. Is this thing going through? Who's going to get freedom? What is going to happen to my plan if I'm a freedom customer? Am I going to be able to buy freedom or the equivalent in, say, you know, April 2023? And so I I do want to catch people up on that. And just I'll just before I let you go, um, briefly tell people that the Competition Bureau has to 
if they oppose a merger, they have to go to the competition tribunal, which is a different part of the competition scene in Canada. It's, it's an independent court, in effect, where they have to go and, and as Simon mentioned, prove that they think that this merger will be shorthand is anti-competitive, longhand is will substantially lessen or prevent competition and is not more efficient for the merging parties, which is a special Canadianism. I won't go into it today. And that the Competition Bureau, after quite a delay, finally decided they were going to go. And after more pleading and all sorts of documents being filed with this competition tribunal, they're starting on Monday, the 7th of November, unless they settle it. And that sets us up to what happens, Simon, with the Minister of Industry, who you say is so key because he also has to approve the spectrum transfer because without a wireless spectrum, you know, holding, you can't run a wireless company because uh, you need that, right? So what happened with Minister Champagne in the last, what is it, two weeks or a week? Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. As you've done a good job explaining, in addition to and separate from the process under the Competition Act, where the commissioner is opposing the merger and there's litigation underway in front of the competition tribunal, separate from that, because any potential remedy to the non-competitive impacts or anti-competitive impacts of this merger would involve necessarily a transfer of spectrum, the minister's approval is required for that. And the minister has been you know, largely silent uh, throughout this process uh, and not that long ago uh, indicated that you know, he would only do what was in the best interest of Canadian consumers and that no transaction had been put on his desk. Um, well, that's since changed. And last week, uh, the minister uh, called a press conference and we all scrambled. There was very little notice to, to listen to it. But in that press conference, the minister identified that among other considerations. So he, he's not suggesting necessarily that these would be the only things that would have to happen, but that among the core conditions that he would place on any transaction that he approved, whoever acquired those assets, so in this case, it's obviously the Videotron who's seeking the approval, uh, would have to hold the licenses for a minimum of 10 years. And what the minister is trying to protect against there is Videotron has an established history as uh, an arbitrage specialist uh, making money hundreds of millions of dollars for its shareholders off the backs of, of what are intended to be pro-competition initiatives. So they acquired Spectrum uh, in the 700 megahertz auction, in the AWS3 auction, sorry, rather AWS auction outside of Quebec and set, sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars more uh, as soon as they were able. So the suggestion here is that they would have to hold those assets for at least 10 years. You know, candidly, I don't think that that is long enough. I mean, our intention would be to operate the business for you know, decades and decades and indefinitely. Um, but Spectrum isn't like an apple or a banana. If you leave it on the counter, it goes bad. I mean, this is a very valuable resource. And if the worst case scenario for Videotron is that they just have to sit while this thing continues to increase in value, that's not going to uh, slow them down. And not surprisingly, I think it was maybe even the same day, certainly the next morning, by the next morning, uh, Videotron had said, yeah, we're fine with that condition. 
the other thing that the minister suggested would have to happen is that uh, Videotron would have to commit to offering the same uh, level of competitive vigor outside of Quebec as they do within Quebec. And the minister noted that Quebec is a 10, 20% more competitive market uh, than Ontario, BC, and Alberta. And again, I, I spoke about this a little bit earlier, but I think it's important to note that it is true that Quebec is moderately more Quebec are more competitive a market than BC, Alberta, and Ontario, but that is not because Videotron is offering better deals than Freedom. Freedom, in fact, offers better deals than Videotron does in Quebec. It's more a function of uh, how long Quebec uh, has had Videotron as a competitor and the fact that as a longstanding uh, Quebec company with, with significant brand presence, uh, they're just uh, they're they're soliciting a more uh, active response from the incumbents than than Freedom seems to be doing, uh, you know, since we sold it to Shaw. Um, notwithstanding the fact that that th those are more affordable plans, so uh, those are the conditions that he has identified. Um, whether or not uh, he would otherwise uh, be satisfied in any given proposal remains to be seen. Uh, you mentioned the efficiencies defense, and we don't have to dig into that. But the efficiencies defense essentially says that, and it is, you're, you're, you're quite right, it's the only, I can't think of any country in the Chile, or OECD, maybe, maybe Chile, but it's very rare and very strange to, to suggest this. But it's a provision that says if a transaction makes the merged entity more efficient, meaning it, it saves costs by virtue of the uh, anti-competitive merger, then it will be allowed to proceed, notwithstanding that it's anti-competitive. So just, just to stress this, the efficiencies defense only becomes relevant in a transaction that is judicially determined to be, uh, to be anti-competitive. So otherwise anti-competitive. To be, Otherwise, to be. Well, yeah, anti-competitive <laughs> period, right? Lower, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on your view of whether something's anti-competitive if you read the whole act or, you know, you you skip over that section 96 stuff in the efficiencies yeah, defense. But I, I, follow your, I follow your reasoning, but this is why the, pre the competition commissioner has said you can have uh, a merger even up to the point of monopoly in Canada because of this defense. So just so people know. It is kind of like a get out of jail free card, um, just to put it in more common terms. But sorry, I, I, I waylaid you. No, here. you're quite right. It, 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 and, and it is true that there have been actual mergers to monopoly here because, uh, candidly, monopolies are pretty efficient for the merging parties. Um, and the fact that the, and I will just tell you, I mean, the policy rationale, which is, you know, if it was ever acceptable, is so not relevant in, in, or acceptable in this context. But the policy rationale for that was that Canadian companies needed help, that if there were mergers that would make our companies bigger, stronger, more efficient, uh, and, and hence more globally competitive, uh, in line with globally competitive standards of efficiency, well, then, even though it's bad for consumers, you know, it, it's in the best interest of Canada to allow those mergers. Now, I, I happen to disagree with that pretty vehemently as a, as a policy but but that was the policy. And in this instance, I would say it becomes very interesting that if the transaction put to the minister is a transaction 
that has been determined to be anti-competitive in effect, but is better for Rogers and effectively Rogers shareholders. Uh, so it, 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 it ultimately proceeds notwithstanding how anti-competitive it is. So that's where the minister's approval, uh, I think, becomes relevant, again, notwithstanding whatever other conditions he may be insisting on. And, and that, I think, is why all Canadians should be talking to their members of parliament and reaching out even to the minister directly by email or, 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 or otherwise to say, we're relying on you to do what's best for competition in this country, regardless of the outcome of the competition tribunal process. Uh, we're relying on you to exercise your discretion and to uh, to stop this merger from from proceeding. Uh, and that's 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 the message we're trying to get out there. Yeah, and so obviously, from Globalize's point of view, if the minister were to to say, "Oh, it's a bad look to uh, have this spectrum transfer go through," which makes the whole deal work, just to remind people uh, after this finding that. The merger is "quote unquote" anti-competitive, except for this um, weird efficiencies defense. Not a good look for us, so I'm going to deny the spectrum holding. Ideally, then, from all you've told me, uh, Globalive would be willing and quite happy if uh, if your offer were accepted and if it was acceptable to the minister to do it at that time. And there's still a possibility of that because none of this has yet been decided. The minister hasn't made a final decision, so on and so forth. There's another alternate. And the alternate is more in the pleadings of the Competition Bureau. And I'll just, because we're getting right to the end of time here, I'll just summarize for people. And that is that Shaw could be stuck with this thing. And that's a better outcome. I think that's an interesting um, viewpoint. Like that's, I believe, the bedrock pleading that he's putting out there is that if Shaw were to continue to own Shaw Wireless (laughs) or Freedom Mobile, they would be able to do so and they would um, then offer service at the, the rate Freedom was offering it and just continue on their merry way. Except I I believe that the rest of the transaction they would like to have go through the Shaw family, right? And so that that's not really, um, like unless they call off the deal because that was the whole point of making the deal, that this, that isn't going to be a realistic not that I want to undercut the competition bureau, but that's not a realistic result. The realistic result is freedom will be sold to somebody. <laughs> and you're saying you guys would do a better job. You'd be a different type of competitor than, than Quebec or Quebec are saying, no, no, me, me, me. <laughs> the minister has said, well, it better be somebody who can offer prices at least at the discount that Quebec or is talking about implicitly saying, I think tipping his hat to say, that if those conditions are satisfied, he'd be fine with a Videotron deal. The fly in the ointment does seem to be the Competition Bureau and Tribunal's decision. Um, so I'll just give you the last word, Simon. Do you think there is a path to consumers getting the people who used to run wind in the future running freedom in one of these scenarios? Is there a way to get there? Is that a good thing? And And, and do we have a chance to see it? Yeah, I appreciate all of that. I think that I would just stress that uh, our offer was and is the highest offer, mm-hmm. and it remains outstanding. We've made that offer to Rogers and Shaw. We've told Shaw that in the event that they cannot get regulatory approval for for what's in front of the Competition Bureau right now, that we would buy the asset directly from them. They've 
just been very blunt and clear that they don't have the capital or the will to operate as a wireless company uh, anymore. I mean, that's why they're selling. And their upcoming auctions, for which we are prepared to compete very actively, uh, there's Spectrum that Videotron holds and is never used that uh, we would be very happy to to, to pay them a, a fair return uh, to get that Spectrum. Uh, but we would buy the asset from Videotron. We would buy the asset from Rogers. We would buy the asset from Shaw. And we are absolutely championing at the bet to get back to what we used to do, do, which is compete with these guys in a way that drives better pricing and more innovation for all Canadians. We've been at this for two years now, and we're not going to give up anytime soon. I didn't expect anything less. So, uh, so thanks for taking us through that. It's a, it's a bit of a thicket, uh, for consumers, but I hope that, you know, your incredible frankness and your knowledge on this and your history have given people a little glimpse of what's at stake and what could be depending on the way things go. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, Simon, so much for coming on and spending so much of your time with us. I really appreciate it. And we'll have you back for an update. I think, (laughs) you know, hopefully we'll see what happens. Uh, It'll be good news, but we'll see. Well, thank you. Okay. So I'm going to turn quickly to our, um, uh, last segment, which uh, we'll do in the last few minutes here, which is uh, told you so. And I've got two this time because I don't think I did one last time. Or if I did, it was uh, the previous one I skipped. The first one is, yeah, I guess it is similar to the last told you so. And that was on the Rogers outage. And we said, hey, you know, can we have a inquiry officer to look into the outage? And could we have a public hearing on outages because companies seem to have difficulty with their networks and consumers do not know what should be planned for and what the remedy should be if there is an outage or how to get notification of what's happening, all sorts of things. And we said, oh, did you know the CRTC hasn't responded to any of those requests and we don't think they ever will? Well, they still haven't. So I was just looking at the uh, outages from the Rogers uh, outage in July and no proceeding has been started and CRTC has not indicated any more appetite to delve into it. Um, since that time, um, since the last podcast was in early September, there has been Hurricane Fiona who has ripped through um, the East Coast and knocked out people's service for telecom in uh, PEI and uh, Nova Scotia and some parts, um, I understand, of Newfoundland and uh, and other areas nearby. And um, some folks have been out for as long as two weeks without telecom service. Well, didn't the CRTC do the same thing as they did with Rogers and Shaw? So this is sort of a pre-I told you so, come and gone, that they just opened an open docket took some information from the companies, which was heavily redacted and then did not open an inquiry or do anything. And I don't think they will. And so we continue to call for a proceeding on outages and how companies handle them because it's dangerous to consumers. There's no excuse to not plan for these things now. And the companies can just go on their merry way and plan for them or not have terms in their contract or not for how much, uh, you know, you get in compensation and it's just a just a really negligent situation by the CRT not to deal with this. And I wasn't surprised they continued to, to do that or not do that. The second thing is we also challenged a license hearing for the CBC. And you may not have heard, um, but 
the CRTC decided to give the CRTC, a li- C, excuse me, the CBC a license, which would have let them move most of their money from their uh, regular TV service and their radio, which most people rely on in Canada, to their online offerings, which they seem to want to be able to compete on the same footing as Netflix and so on. We agree they should have an online presence and they should, you know, deal with customers and Canadians who want to get their media through online services, but that they should continue to support under their license, their, their, their viewers and listeners who rely on CBC radio and TV to get their news and their other information and their entertainment. And, uh, the CR, the CRTC gave them a license that let them do that kind of shifting and, and, and cut out a number of other expectations that are under their licenses and the cabinet did reverse them. So we petitioned along with many other groups, including independent producers, um, and, uh, and other, uh, French language, um, people, uh, concerned with French language production and creators and many others involved with the CBC and the CRC has to do the hearing again. So that is very good news. And we are going to look out for all users of CBC, including people who are used to getting their good old TV and radio from CBC and Radio Canada. And hopefully we will hold them to a reasonable amount of money for everybody. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. We'll be back probably a little bit more quickly with an episode before our annual dinner, which is on the 25th of November. And I invite you all to come and tickets uh, information will be on the website by the time you hear this. And it is at the National Arts Center at six o'clock on the 25th of November. Hope to see you there. So thanks, everybody. And goodbye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Fight for That. The Public Interest Advocacy Center needs your help to keep making this show and to keep fighting for you. I'm John Lawford. See you next time for another round of consumer protection. 